Welcome back, everyone, to Beginning at Moses. Today we'll be covering the book of Deuteronomy and then taking our leave of the Torah, of the books of Moses, of the Pentateuch. Thus we'll be ending our first of three sections of the Old Testament. But as I'll mention further at the end of this talk, we will also be taking our leave of going through all of the books in exact order, at least the order you're used to. So there'll be a logic to it, but nevertheless, not the order that you're accustomed to, perhaps. So the title of the talk last time was the book of Numbers. Well, we all know what the Numbers means as an English word. So this one might be more obscure for you, too. And this, once again, we're at a book which I bet that most Catholics have not read, Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is a Greek word. It's a Greek word which translates according to the Septuagint, the Jewish translation of the scriptures over a couple centuries before Christ, which means literally second law, deuteronomia. So, so deutero, deuteros nomos, right? so the second law. The understanding there, though, and the reason why that title is used is it means a second copy of the law, a second expression of the law, a second delivery of the law, deliverance of the law. It's not a new law. Although, when we read as Christians the book of Deuteronomy, we might almost be tempted to think of it that way, as a new law, because of the fact that of all the books of Moses, this one seems to speak most of all to what we know as the second law, that is the new law, the New Testament. Deuteronomy comes in about third place as, as far as books that are quoted in the New Testament. So that's quite a lot. There's the Psalms, there's the book of Isaiah, quoted very, very often in the New Testament. But Deuteronomy is quoted very often as well, and especially quoted by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Oh, very often. And we'll see why. If you were going to take a book of the Old Testament and go ahead and have a read on your own, uh, Lexio Divina, well, this might be one to choose. Like the book of Genesis, which I think you can have a great intimacy with, but this, was, this book is much different from the book of Genesis. Nevertheless, if you were going to take it for spiritual reading, I think you would have fairly good luck with it. Its whole manner of expression is much closer to the New Testament than many of the other books of the Old Testament. We pass, in fact, from Deuteronomy to the New Testament quite easily. We might almost say that if all we had were the book of Deuteronomy, and then after that had to go straight to the Gospels, you might say, well, in fact, there's no difficult passage at all from the old law to the new. It seems very, very organic, very natural to pass from the old law to the new. We might understand it a lot better. Of course, we know there's a lot more than that, but that's why it's worth reading. And so we're going to start with the first of three discourses. We might divide this whole book into three great discourses by Moses. Sometimes this book is referred to as Moses' last will and testament. 
point. We already know that Moses isn't going to enter the promised land. He's going to reach the end of this book, and as we suspect, he's going to die because he's not going to reach the promised land. He's going to die at the age of 120 years, interestingly, because that's that number we were given way back before the flood. Before the flood, God declared that that was going to be the age limit of mankind. And now we're going to see Moses reach that age limit, and then that's it. Nobody else is going to go to that anymore, to 120. So he dies at the age of 120 at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, and thus we've reached that age limit that God declared back in Genesis before the flood. So sometimes it is referred to as Moses' last will and testament because of everything he says now and everything he seems to bequeath to the Israelites before he takes his leave of them and passes on to the next world. But for you, and especially as we begin to read Deuteronomy together, you might note down that it's a very fruitful reading for all of you if you would like to understand what it means to be a Jew. If you to understand what it means to be a Jew, then certainly in the opening chapters of Deuteronomy, you'll understand very well. So, this is about the point at which I would say that if, if you like, you could hit pause on this video and simply go ahead and read at least the first four chapters of Deuteronomy in order to understand what I'm talking about. It would be a very important recap for you, first of all, because that's what Moses is going to do, first of all. So... The book begins, and this is the Hebrew name of the book, right? So the Hebrew name of the book sometimes is simply devarim. It's simply words, or sometimes the words, or sometimes the first word. These are the words. That's the name of the book. And because Moses goes right in now to a discourse where he recaps everything that's happened since the Exodus. So very useful for you. If you need a good recap, why not use the inspired word of Scripture for your recap of all the wanderings, everything that occurs up until this point. Where now there's going to be a new law, is a sense, a new copy, a second copy, second delivery of the law. Not on a mountain this time, which is going to be referred to several times here as Horeb, right? But that's a, just another name for Mount Sinai. We always went by these two names, and we hear both names, but Horeb, Sinai, we hear both. But that's not where it is now. Now there's going to be on the plains. It's the only time we're going to hear a law, you know, a law delivered in that way on the plains. So we know that our Lord Jesus Christ is going to deliver his law on a mountain, right? It's going to be the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, which is very closely tied to Deuteronomy. However, there is, we know that when Luke refers to the Sermon on the Mount, his account of it, he says that our Lord stands on a plain. It says that our Lord stands on a plane to deliver at. So we have those two different versions, but that recalls very much Deuteronomy here, that this covenant that the Hebrews will receive now on the plains of Moab a few chapters from now. It's not that St. Luke is in disagreement with St. Matthew. There's several exegetical explanations for that. And in fact, perhaps it was based on the wording the same place. It's also possible, too, that our Lord preached more than once. You know, he delivered to one audience and then the same thing to another audience, so quite possible as well. Nevertheless, <clears throat> interesting that, it, that that's referred to in the gospel. So we have this recap of all the wanderings, 
and of all the sins, especially of the Israelites. And it's very striking to hear this. I have to say, when I read this, I think of our Lord. I also think of St. Paul. I think you may find when you read this, it'll read similar to the, to the epistles of St. Paul. Because, because St. Paul, of course, is writing to us always in the first person. And it's very powerful to read the writings of St. Paul. But here you hear, as always, Moses now in the first person. And so he describes everything that, that the Israelites did. And the emphasis here on how faithful God has been to them and how much already they have betrayed him. But now he commands obedience to them. And thus we come to chapter 4 here, some very beautiful words which I, I read to you. We can't read all of it together, but let's at least read some of these verses together beginning at chapter 4. And now, O Israel, give heed to the statutes and the ordinances which I teach you, and do them, that you may live. And go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, gives you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, referring to the, their apostasy and their idolatry back in the book of Numbers. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive this day. Behold, I have taught you statutes and ordinances as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land which you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. When they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and ordinances so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? We have here also the reason for this second law, this second covenant which they're going to have. As we know, the, the one that was given on Mount Sinai, first it was very simple, right? Ten Commandments. And then there was the golden calf. So, slight addition to the Law, well, several hundred more commandments added in as this law of bondage. But this is going to be the same idea here, that now we're going to have this second covenant given in response to the idolatry that occurred in the book of Numbers. The difference here, though, is that this is not going to be, it's not going to read like the book of Leviticus, not at all. So what's going to happen now is we're going to have a restatement, in fact, in chapter 5. So very important to note, right? Please do... Make a note of that. You should know where the Ten Commandments are to be found in the Bible. Okay, So first in Exodus 20, but then they are given again in Deuteronomy 5. So Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. We might say, too, that especially in our Catholic tradition, that, that the way they are stated in Deuteronomy is really the foundation for our Catholic tradition as far as the Ten Commandments. They're, they're stated this, the same in each case, but especially our division of them. We won't get into that at the moment, but just very briefly, you know that uh, there are two different traditions as to the division of the Ten Commandments. So the, the division is simply that whereas some like to divide the First Commandment into two things and say, thou shalt have no other gods but me, and then adding to it a second, you shall not make any graven images. And therefore, in order to keep it as Ten Commandments, they squeeze the last two together and just say, thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or thy neighbor's good. 
Here in Deuteronomy, that's not really possible because it's not even the same wording that's used. So it's very clear that 9 and 10 are two different commandments. So it would seem then that the Catholic tradition, at least founded on Deuteronomy, is, is, is the stronger one. So the, nevertheless, in the East, they, they do divide it that way. And most Protestants, not the Lutherans, but pretty much all other Protestants follow the East there, especially because they like to insist on the division of the first commandment to say that Catholics make graven images. So I understand, though, in our Catholic tradition, though, that this, for, this prohibition of graven images goes along simply with strange gods. It means don't make graven images of strange gods. So we saw that even, even in the Old Testament, even in the Ark of the Covenant, there are graven cherubim, right? There are angels carved right, in the Ark. So it's not making any graven images. Clearly, it's not forbidden there. But we are not to make graven images of idols. We're not to idolize. We're not to adore and serve images. Here, though, in chapter 5, we have the restatement of the commandments, and that is essential to understanding Deuteronomy because everything that follows now will be a long, drawn-out explanation of the Ten Commandments. So this book is a, perhaps a lot easier to follow than Leviticus, for instance, because we have the Ten Commandments laid out, which we're all familiar with, and then the laws that follow are very, very closely tied to that. All the, everything that follows is sort of a case law, as it were, for the Ten Commandments. Specific examples of how the Ten Commandments play out in daily moral life. So this book is very much easier to follow and very important for you to read. So we have then the Ten Commandments, but even more important for us, this is really getting to the reason why we're reading De De Deuteronomy together as part of this little class, right? is that Deuteronomy, we're perhaps not going to have too many wow moments of where we just, oh, a prophecy. There he is, our Lord clearly foretold. There's going to be a little bit of that, but not, not, not too much. It's more that we look at the whole thing and we, see, we feel much closer to our Lord Jesus Christ after reading Deuteronomy. So, you know, okay, we're getting close here. There's this idea throughout that, that somehow this law needs to be summed up. Somehow it needs to be, yeah, just despite all these laws, we, have to, we can't forget the essence of what is to come, right? And that's what St. Paul's going to insist on, too. He's going to play off of Deuteronomy very much to insist on, no, what we're going back to now is the simple law, the law of Abraham, the promise of Abraham. That's what's for us. So right after the Ten Commandments, then, we get to chapter 6, and what is perhaps the most celebrated passage of Deuteronomy, and I think very important for your education to understand what, what this is. So, Chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, constitute what is known as the Shema. So a prayer recited thrice daily by all pious Jews. So this passage is to be, it's, they, it's always kept, it's always kept in mezuzah, in their, in their homes. You know those little things you see sometimes they put in their doorways, right? So, good. So, you... And this is recited thrice daily, along with a couple other passages. So a passage that we'll look at later. So another passage in, in chapter 11, and then also going back to Numbers 15. But let's just dwell on the Shema here. And why is it called the Shema? Because that's the first word of it. Hear, hear, O Israel. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This is the thing, the thing that all pious Jews, all the Israelites in ancient times, and then even up until modern-day Judaism, that they have to repeat throughout the day. In the midst of a pagan world, they have to affirm again and again their unique religion of monotheism. There's one God. Unlike all the other nations, they have this God who we were just told by Moses comes close to us, comes near to us, because he alone is God. Who is God but the Lord? The Lord our God is one Lord. Then what follows, though? What follows? After having been given the Ten Commandments, now we're given what he has already announced to us just a few verses before is going to be the great commandment. So this is going to be the great commandment. He says at the beginning of chapter 6. So what is it? So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So the very thing that our Lord Jesus Christ will take, he'll say, this is what sums up the law. This is what sums up the law. Along with the other ones. He says, that's the greatest commandment. So the Shema, that's the greatest commandment. What you've already been reciting, absolutely, that does sum up the law. But along with what you heard in Leviticus, in the midst of all those laws that have been laid down, in this ponderous law of bondage, what did we hear? Right in the middle, right? In the middle of the book of Leviticus, we had in chapter 19, 19 verse 18, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So these two commandments, our Lord, as faithful rabbi that he was, declaring that he had not come to abolish but to fulfill the law, he said, here, I'm fulfilling it. Here's how I'm fulfilling it. All those laws you had, here's one, here's the other. Yep. Have the great commandment and the second one, which he says is like unto it. So thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, with thy whole soul, with thy whole might. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And so the Shema continues, And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates. So that is the Shema, which as I said, will be, goes along with Leviticus 19. It will be recalled by our Lord in all the Gospels. So starting though with Matthew, if you want to refer to it, you go to Matthew 22. You see his whole consideration of this passage of Deuteronomy. So again, our Lord loved to quote Deuteronomy. What does he quote always against the devil too, right? Our Lord is tempted, right? He's tempted three times by the devil. He always shoots Deuteronomy at him, right? So... <clears throat> And continuing in this vein, we have this consideration of the essence of the law. So if we go on a few chapters, we go on to chapter 10. And Moses now, speaking for the last time to his flock, says to them, chapter 10, verse 12, and so on, and now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I command you this day for your good? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. If the Lord set his heart in love upon your fathers and chose the descendants after them, you above all peoples, as at this day, Circumcise 
therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless, and the widow loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And he goes on to describe then the whole essence of the law, but we have already then this insistence of even now, we consider that, even the circumcision, which goes back not to Moses, but to Abraham. Even that, we're told that even this law, which would seem to be the law of the promise and not the law of bondage, the law of Abraham said, even this is to be understood ultimately spiritually and said, really, what, what matters here is to be circumcised in heart. Be circumcised in heart. What, who will say this later? Who will insist on this later? That you must be, what matters is to be circumcised in heart. Well, it's St. Stephen, isn't it? Right? St. Stephen will say this right before he's stoned. He'll accuse the Jews of his time and say, it doesn't matter, you follow the law, but no, you, don't, you haven't followed the law, you haven't followed the essence of the law, as in Deuteronomy, you're uncircumcised in heart. So No, you haven't been circumcised in heart. And, and then, of course, this is what St. Paul will insist on again and again. He will say that circumcision is now fulfilled in the new law with what? With what's going to be foretold again and again in the Old Testament, that there's going to be, instead of circumcision now, it will be fulfilled by a new thing, a cleansing, a washing. Right? by water. And so the baptism is what will now fulfill that. Baptism is what will make the whole man clean. And the circumcision was only a figure. But this is already foretold. Already now it's being said that no, even that, even what goes back to Abraham, is not meant to be forever. Because what matters truly is circumcision of heart. I'll read just briefly then the, the other passage here, which we find in Deuteronomy, which, is, which Jews are to recite uh, on a daily basis, which is in 11, starting on verse 13, chapter 11, starting verse 13. And if you will obey my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land at its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you shall eat and be full. Take heed, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, and the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and he shut up the heavens, so that there be no rain, and the land yield no fruit, and you perish quickly off the good land which the Lord gives you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you're walking by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. <clears throat> as we shall see, what Moses will tell them is really a part of his final discourse is that he will say, but this will not happen. You, in fact, will not remain faithful. You will not remain faithful, and you will be punished. In fact, you'll be scattered throughout the earth. But one day, the Lord will gather you up again. One day, the Lord will gather you up again, despite 
your unfaithfulness. And now, moving on in this discourse, which comes after the Ten Commandments, so this explanation of the law, we have perhaps the only moment in Deuteronomy where we can say, okay, well here then is clearly a prophecy, right? Clearly a prophecy. Everything else is sort of here, it's an organic whole and a beautiful preparation for something to come. Once this constant insistence now that everything that's been laid down is nevertheless not the end. Something is yet to come. But this becomes more explicit now. When Moses speaks about a prophet to come. So in speaking about false prophets and divination, in condemning these things in chapter 18, starting at verse 15, he declares what will be cited several times, referred to several times in the New Testament. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brethren. Him you shall heed, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They have rightly said all that they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among brethren. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not give heed to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Who is this prophet to come? We might ask right away, we see, well, this of the prophecies we've heard so far, this perhaps is not the most explicit. So it of course, could refer to Christ, who is prophet, priest, and king. But perhaps it refers to someone else. The New Testament authors didn't think so. They certainly thought that it was fulfilled in Christ. And this is what St. Peter says, Acts chapter 3. He says that. St. Stephen, a few chapters later, in chapter 7, St. Stephen, also in his preaching, once again will refer back to Deuteronomy and say that Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, he is that prophet foretold by Moses. And what's the big question to St. John at the beginning of Gospel of St. John, right? So the Jews come to see John in the desert. Right? You'll be familiar with that if you know the beautiful piece by Gibbons, right? Several people in the audience tonight know that, I know, right? But so the record of John in here during Advent, very beautiful piece for Advent. We know that the Jews ask John, they say, Art thou the prophet? Right? They don't say, Art thou a prophet? They say, Art thou the prophet? And so, the prophet. Well, who's the prophet? It's not just, art thou a, a prophet of some sort? No, art thou the prophet? We're waiting for the prophet. We've heard, we hear that several times in the New Testament. Who, who is this prophet? Well, they're all referring to the same thing. They're saying, art thou the prophet? So we know that Jews at the time of our Lord Jesus Christ were still waiting for this prophet foretold by Moses. So, it would seem that any other interpretation is not going to be sufficient. It could be seen, and it wouldn't be wrong to see it in this way. You could say that, well, we are coming to the close of the five books of Moses, right? We're coming to the end now. 
So Moses is, in a sense, announcing, saying, that's finished now, this part of Revelation. Now what's going to come next? Remember what we said, right? This is a threefold division for the Hebrews. There's the law, there's the prophets, and then there are the writings. So, so next, now the whole section on the prophets is coming. Even though for us, a lot of that is history, they refer to those things as the prophets. So already with Joshua, it's going to be the prophets, the Nevi'im. So we might say he's sort of introducing this section now, saying that's what's going to come now. Now the prophets. Well, okay, it's not necessarily wrong. But we're going to see right away that as we, as we go on through the prophets, well, none of them are going to fulfill this. Already something that's very remarkable about Moses, right? What's remarkable about Moses, even up till now, is that up until now, we pointed this out as sort of an apologetical argument, is that uh, compared to other writings of this, in this period of human literature, our writings here in the, in the law are pretty sparing with regard to miracles. It's not that every moment we have a miracle. It's not, it's not like Greek and Roman mythology or any other mythology of the period. It's not just endless fantasy. It's not. It's, very, it's pretty sober history. But Moses certainly does work a lot of miracles. He does very much stand out in that regard. We're not going to see someone like that again, in fact. The, the only one who's going to come close is the prophet Elias, or Elijah, however you choose to spell it. And he's the only one who's going to come close in the Old Testament. Nobody else is going to come close to the miracles of, of, of Moses. And what we'll see is that even with Elijah, that's not it yet. See that? Nope, because even then the prophets afterwards will say, yes, he came, but... There's more to come. They'll say, actually, he's going to come back. So even that is not going to be the fulfillment. So no prophet is going to fit the bill here in anything that, that's going to come. So even though you might just end at Deuteronomy and say, well, okay, but maybe that just means the prophets as a whole. Or maybe it just means one of those prophets who's going to come. And that, that'll be the fulfillment of that. Just like we might have said at the end of Genesis, in that amazing prophecy of Judah, right? The scepter of Judah will not depart until he comes to whom it belongs. Well, you say, well, that's King David. No, except that it's not, right? It comes to King David, but then that's the, not the end of the story. It keeps going, and we'll see that that will not be the fulfillment at all. It's only a, a very minor fulfillment of it. So, no one to come. You know, not Joshua, not Samuel, not Elias. None of them will fulfill this prophecy of Moses. The only one who's going to be able to talk who's going to be able to fulfill this, because this is how this book will end, too, talking about Moses, and no one arose like Moses. No one ever performed wonders such as Moses, and no one ever talked to God face to face the way a man talks to his friend. That's how Moses talked to the Lord, and no one has ever done that, and says no one else since has ever arisen. So there's going to have to be someone else to fulfill this prophecy of the prophet to come. <clears throat> And who will be this prophet to come? We'll pass now to a, another section here, which might not seem to be immediately related, but we'll see that there, we've already seen this tension a little bit, and we'll see it in future books of the Old Testament, is that this one who is to come, who seemed to be a king at the end of the book of Genesis, that's who was going to come, it's going to be a king, We've already had some references to how this might be a priest to come. 
might be a priest to come. We've already seen the priesthood of Aaron and what it does and how that's also not quite complete. It's not a fulfillment not fulfilled yet. Something remains to be fulfilled. And this prophet, too. And with all these cases, we always see there's something going on. It's not just that he's going to come and reign majestically. There's going to be an aspect of suffering, of ignominy attached to this one who is to come. This is exactly the teaching of St. Paul on these passages of Deuteronomy. The great text for this, you should just read beginning to end. I know some people in the small audience have done that already as part of a class, is Galatians. Galatians is going to speak so clearly about the teaching of Deuteronomy, especially this passage, which St. Paul will simply consider to be a prophecy. So what do we have then in the close of chapter 21? We're speaking about capital punishment here. Interestingly, we'll find that capital punishment is not just meted out right and left in the Old Testament. Actually, what we see very clearly in Deuteronomy is capital punishment is always attached to a direct breaking of one of the Ten Commandments. As I said, what develops now through these chapters is a sort of case law for the Ten Commandments, how they play out in daily life. And now speaking about capital punishment in 21-22... The law of Moses here says, he says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is accursed by God. And you shall not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance. If we didn't have St. Paul and his inspired words, we might not be able to see that as a as a prophecy, right? It's a prefigure of Christ. But he makes it clear in his teaching that it must be. So in chapter 3 of Galatians, <clears throat> he's speaking to us about the works of the law versus justification by faith. And we know if we read Galatians closely, we know that has nothing to do with the rejection of works the way the Protestants would reject them. He's very clear that, no, we justification is by faith, it's by grace through faith, working in charity. So works of charity, works of mercy, works of love are tied to our justification by faith. So it doesn't exclude works of charity, but it does exclude works of the law. The law could not justify. So speaking against this and seeing why the law is now defunct, that all that matters now is the law of promise, which was given to Abraham, St. Paul says in chapter 3, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Again, quoting, quoting our text here. So, now it is evident that no man is justified before God by the law, for he who through faith is righteous shall live. But the law does not rest on faith, for he who does them shall live by them, it says in the law. Then he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. Same quote in Deuteronomy there, Cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. 
that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through, through faith. I'll go on just to read what he says after that, reminding us that what is to come here, what our, Lord, what our Lord Jesus Christ brings back is the promise of Abraham. He says, I give a human example, brethren. No one can annul even a man's will or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say unto his seeds, referring to many, but referring to one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards, that is, after Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance is by the law, it is no longer by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And then he reminds us, we've, we've quoted this before, but it's worth mentioning, this is where it is in chapter 3. He says, why then was the law? Why then the law? St. Paul asks. It was added because of transgressions, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was ordained by angels through an intermediary. Now, an intermediary, intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. <clears throat> so, what he's saying is that what everything that's been handed down, everything we're hearing about now, was added because of transgressions. We see that it was always a consequence of sin, that this law of bondage was given. And Christ is going to come and redeem us from this. He will be that prophet foretold by Moses, but how will he do this? He will do this by becoming the curse of the law. Christ will take all that upon himself and become the curse of the law. And how? By enduring that ignominious death, what even the law declares is a death of ignominy. So dying an accursed death, being crucified. So being placed on a tree to die, which is why he'll have to be taken down that very night and, and buried. So Christ then becomes the curse for us, for our redemption. We pass now to the actual covenant given at Moab. So in a pagan land, right? Covenant given in Moab. So these people, the Moabites, right? We'll hear about them more soon. Well, in a few episodes, but the Moabites. Moab was a descendant of, of Lot. You know? Lot, the one who lived in Sodom, the nephew of Abraham, right? So distantly related to the Israelites. But it's here that this covenant will be given. This covenant in light of the sins that occurred in the book of Numbers. And what will he foretell now? Moses will speak of curses that are to come but then go on to say that even though the Israelites will not, in fact, keep this law, they will betray their God again, and they will suffer the punishment for it. We've, in fact, already heard this. We heard it in Leviticus, too. And this is what's going to happen. And they're going to be scattered. They're going to be scattered among the nations. But here is a promise, though. He says, If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you this day, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed should be in the field. Blessed should be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground. 
and the fruit of your beasts, and increase your cattle and the young of your flock. Blessed be your basket and your kneading trough. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed when you go out. And goes on, after delivering the covenant, that God's fidelity to the Israelites will never fail, despite all of their transgressions. He says, after they disobey and are scattered among the nations, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and then the curse which I have set before you, and called them to mind among the nations, where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children obey his voice in all that I command you this day, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion upon you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will fetch you. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Once again, this promise that there will be a spiritual circumcision to come. The law will be observed in the future spiritually. We'll hear this again and again and more and more explicitly in the prophets to come. Chapter 30 then concludes with these beautiful verses, which are very good to meditate upon for our own moral life. When he says, starting in verse 15, See, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you and the land which you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you this day that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land which you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life, that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and clinging to him. For that means life to you and length of days, and you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Very important moment now, in chapter 31. We've already been told that Moses is not going to enter the land. He's going to die now at 120 years old. Moses has brought the stiff-necked people so far that he will not bring them into the promised land. For us now, considering this text, we think, well, yes, this certainly prefigures what is to come, doesn't it? The law of Moses cannot bring us to salvation. It can only bring us so far. Moses can't get us into the promised land. He can't get us into the promised land of eternal life. Who's going to do that? Well, we know who it is. 
But in fact, he goes by the same name here in the Old Testament. Because who is going to lead the Israelites into the Promised Land? Someone by the name of Joshua. Yes, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. It is the Lord saves. The Lord is Savior. He is the one now who will be elected. So, he is chosen then as the successor to Moses, the one who will lead the Hebrews into the promised land. Starting in verse 7, chapter 31, Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. You shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Moses then sings in chapter 32 a canticle, which if you're at all familiar with the divine office, well, this canticle is always sung at Saturdays, Saturday at Lauds. So in the morning prayer of the church, or by the end of the night office, really, in the office of Lauds, <clears throat> the whole canticle of Moses on the traditional Roman breviary, that's how it was, always on the ferries of, of Saturday, he would sing, he would chant as part of the divine office in the morning, the whole canticle of Moses, the whole canticle found in chapter 32. So very long, which comes really as his final words to the people of Israel. It's his final prayer over them, which I invite you to meditate upon, but we will pass from that there. There's much to meditate upon, and we could... In fact, draw some conclusions there, but I would say that it's better just to move on now at this point. <clears throat> that, but it reads nevertheless as a very beautiful summary of what we've spoken about so far about Israel's infidelity and the promises to be fulfilled by the Lord in the future. <clears throat> Moses then in chapter 33 gives a final blessing upon the people. And if you read the final blessing in chapter 33, I hope you see immediately a parallel. It's a parallel with the blessing of Jacob upon his 12 sons. We have a renewal of this blessing upon the 12 tribes in chapter 33. So very much like Genesis 49. So this is Jacob blessed his 12 sons who would give birth to the tribes. Now we have a renewal of this blessing upon the twelve tribes by Moses. And then the death of Moses in chapter 34. So Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. You can still go there today. If you go to the top of Mount Nebo, you can look out just as Moses did and see the whole promised land. And the Lord showed him all the land Gilead as far as Dan, all Nephtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zohar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. 
I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Beor. But no man knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. And the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. And then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of spirit of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him. So the sons of Israel obeyed him, and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to all his land. For all the mighty power and all the great and terrible deeds which Moses wrought in the sight of all Israel. With that, the law of Moses comes to the close, and we would prepare then to enter the Nevi'im, so the writings of the prophets, so this great section of the Old Testament. However, I already mentioned to you that I wasn't going to stick to the exact order of all the books. And that's why, starting the next episode, I'm just giving you a preview now because it will give you a chance to read up a little bit. For the next episode, we are not going to go straight into Joshua. Of course, later on, when you look at these on YouTube, you can pick whatever order you like. But I would invite you, nevertheless, to follow the order I'm proposing for you now. So for next time, if you'd even like to do a little homework, of course, you'd like to take some time to meditate on the passages of Deuteronomy to which I referred. Next time, though, we are going to consider the book of Job. You might wonder, I'll tell you more about that next time, but there's a very strong reason I have for considering now the book of Job before we move on. I hope some of you are at least more familiar with Job than some of these other books, probably for its moral lessons that it contains and the fact that it refers to the great work on theodicy, that is, the work that justifies the ways of God to men. We're going to consider it, however, and that's why I think it's important to consider it next time, in view of Christ. And how does the book of Job speak to us of Christ who is to come? We'll see you next time. God bless.